Innovation and discovery have flourished at Carolina since its founding. Centuries later, these two things continue to play a major role in creating a sustainable campus. Here on the Sustainable Carolina podcast, we talk with Tar Heels about the intertwined nature of sustainability. Chief Sustainability Officer Mike Peeler guest hosts this episode of the podcast with Alex Hopkins, who is the Interim Director of the Energy Transition Initiative at UNC Chapel Hill. Hello, everyone. My name is Mike Peeler. I am the university's Chief Sustainability Officer, and I'm glad to be the guest host today of the Sustainable Carolina podcast. And I'm really excited uh, to be talking about something that's really important to our university, to our state, to our country, and to the world, the energy transition. And my guest today is Alex Hopkins. And Alex joined an organization within the Institute for the Environment called the Energy Transition Initiative last year as a research associate. The Energy Transition Initiative is a joint venture between the Institute for the Environment and UNC School of Law's Center for Climate, Energy, Environment, and Economics. We're excited to launch this initiative. We're fortunate to have support from one of our Institute for the Environment board members, Philip Blumenthal and his family foundation, who provided support to get this uh, effort off the ground. And so today we're really excited to talk about where we've been, where we're going, and the opportunity that presents itself to help our state, and honestly also to help our university as we work through our energy transition. So Jonas Monist is a professor at UNC School of Law, and he leads um, the center that I mentioned before, the Center for Climate, Energy, Environment, and Economics, or CE3. And he and I had conversations early on about ways that we could work together to tackle this significant challenge, to understand how best to, to guide the state, and as I mentioned, all the other levels of organization, through the transition from fossil fuel burning energy to renewable energy in the long run. In the time since the Energy Transition Initiative was launched, um, Jonas has taken a leave of absence and is working at the Center for Applied Environmental Law and Policy. And Alex, who's with me today, who was hired earlier on as a research associate, is now the interim director of the Energy Transition Initiative. So it's a great opportunity to speak with Alex. Alex, thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. I'm excited. All right. So when we think about the process that led to the creation of the Energy Transition Initiative, there were some conversations with stakeholders. Uh, Jonas was very engaged in that community and actively working through CE3 to make contributions and advise around the energy transition. And we saw an opportunity to, to create an organization focused more specifically um, on the, the tasks that you need to take on to be as efficient as possible in this really significant change that involves a lot of infrastructure. Could you tell me, Alex, from your perspective, what some of the important early groundwork was that Jonas pursued, and even perhaps that you may have been a part of as you began as a research associate? Yeah, absolutely. So I, I think I'd point to a couple things um, that Jonas was working on before my time, as it were. Uh, one of those was actually a, a report and a stakeholder engagement effort that he and some of our colleagues over down the road at, at Duke, yes, we do work with those folks, uh, worked on uh, as part of the North Carolina Clean Energy Plan. Uh, that kind of laid the groundwork for some of the work that we're doing now. Um, but kind of more broadly than that, I think Jonas set me up for success, set the ETI up for success by having a wealth of relationships with some of the folks that we work with directly. And some of those people include 
you know, regulators across the southeast region, and we can dive into some of that regional work. Um, but also, you know, across the state of North Carolina, both within the Utilities Commission, who's a really important actor in this space, but also um, among funders and other parts of the Carolina community across campus, which is a, a key goal of mine is to kind of get the ETI to be more well known across the campus community among students, not just those that took his class at, over at the law school, but uh, more broadly speaking than that. So there's definitely a, a great foundation that's been laid down by Jonas. That's great. Thank you. So maybe continuing on that theme a little bit, you mentioned the the existing relationships and some of the energy that had built, been built around this area. Um, what made you interested in, in coming to join us? We're thrilled to have you join as the inaugural employee, the inaugural staff member of the Energy Transition Initiative. What drew you to the position and, and what did you find exciting about the potential of the team? Yeah, that's a great question. I'm going to call myself employee number two for the ETI. Uh, We're going to take a little bit of a startup mentality here. I was drawn to this position because I saw it as a way to be creative. And I I think I'm drawn to opportunities to think creatively and kind of mold the work, not have it be as formulaic and more kind of a a creative, you know, uh, exercise in trying to bring different perspectives in to grow something from the ground up. I think from a kind of a practical perspective, that was what drew me to that position. It's grown into something more than I expected, a little quicker than I expected, but I think that's that gets into that exciting aspect of why I was drawn to this in general. I've been working on energy issues in, in a different way, and for me to kind of engage at a university with state-level folks, regional folks, it felt like a way to get the proximity of my work to the impact a little bit closer, to kind of close that gap. So for all those reasons, I was really excited to take the position back in I think it was July, early August, uh, and to spend several months, you know, kind of getting a, a nice groundwork laid down with Jonas and then with Jonas's um, new role to kind of step into this more expanded leadership position. That's great. And I think that's a great way to describe it. The The proximity to impact is a really good way to think of it. Is it is there a big distinction between thinking about these issues? You were in D.C. thinking of things perhaps from more of a federal perspective as you move down to state level, I mean, obviously, it's a, a smaller geographic area, a little bit different kind of government, but how different is is the way these processes take place? So I think maybe a little bit of background on some of the work I was doing um, in a previous role. I was actually working at a think tank called the Stimson Center, and just one project that I was working on that got me exposed to some of the energy issues that I continue to work on now I was looking more at how to leverage the physical footprint, and we're going to go into the weeds here, I apologize in advance, but the physical footprint of United Nations peacekeepers in some countries around the world that are the least electrified, the most prone to the effects of climate change, um, and how do we leverage that footprint to introduce clean energy in places where there's not even that much fossil fuel investment. So it was this kind of cool Rubik's Cube problem that I was drawn to, and I think some of the, the skills and the attributes of working on that project are very transferable to working on issues at the state level, working on issues across the southeast region, and also contextualizing and, and translating some of the federal policy that is really relevant to some of the work I'm doing, namely the Inflation Reduction Act. And, and some of those transferable skills have a lot to do with policy communication. Some of those um, things that I do on a day-to-day basis have a lot to do with communicating complex ideas to varying types of audiences. But I think the biggest difference is the type of bureaucracy that we navigate is a little bit different. I'm not 
I'm not taking the train up to New York and hoping to get a meeting with someone in the United Nations headquarters when they're spinning lots of different plates at the same time. I think there are some similarities in terms of the restrictions and some of the constraints and and you know levels of priorities that folks at North Carolina in the North Carolina um, state level work on. But I, I do think that I'm able to get a little bit more access. And that people, uh, the going back to the proximity issue I mentioned earlier, I feel like I'm a little bit closer to the folks I'm working with and trying to help think about these complex policy issues and the impact that I'm hoping to be a part of. That's really interesting. Thank you. So I th- I know from observing the Energy Transition Initiative that the the facility with multiple stakeholders is a really important thing. And I'm interested in, as you approach different stakeholders, say policymakers versus a regulator, Talking about the same things, talking about the energy transition, how does your approach differ or does it? I think it, do, it does differ. Um, a lot of the work that we've done up to this point has been less focused on elected officials and more on people that work, for example, in state energy offices, people that are appointed by the governor, for example, in North Carolina, in the North Carolina case, the Utilities Commission, uh, air quality regulators. So it's a little bit different when you're focusing on that on that audience because they have very specific goals that are set by the other parts of their that administration and they they kind of have to meet those with specific timelines and they're they're working within those constraints I, I would probably have to punt a little bit on some of the policymaker aspect of this just because a lot of our work is not focused on them a key a key factor there is to think about how creative those people can be the legislation that created the the mandate to create the North Carolina Carbon Plan was bipartisan. It was something that kind of surprised a lot of people, but it's a pretty good example of what the elected officials are able to do when um, when they kind of work together to do something innovative. Yeah, that's really interesting. So maybe coming back a little closer to home, I know in early conversations with Jonas, I, I know what our dream was and when we thought about the ETI, and I know what we, we hoped it could be, but... I'm interested to know from you in your experience, even though it's been fast moving and on a (laughs) steep ascent, but how do you, what benefits do you see of having the energy transition initiative in this university and maybe specifically in the Institute for the Environment? I think a lot of the benefits that stem from the ETI being embedded at IE have a lot to do with IE's track record of bringing diverse stakeholders together and having a lot of credibility in how they do that. And in addition to that, I think the way that IE is able to tap into what I mentioned you know, a few minutes ago, a very diverse group of people on campus. I mean, students, um, research assistants, people that are working on different types of degrees, obviously faculty and staff, but just, just clubs even. I, I mean, I went to a great event uh, that you were at, I believe. I think I saw you there. I think you were shaking hands with people. I don't know. Um, <laughs> where the Carolina Outing Club brought a really, really cool author to talk about a, a trek that he did along the Keystone XL proposed pipeline a couple of years ago. And it was just a really good example of IE having the ability to bring bring a group of people to, to a, a discussion around energy issues and the energy transition and the environmental impacts that you know are built into that. IE was able to co-sponsor that event. And I, there's been several other examples. I would just note that one. So I think all of us are drawn to this organization in large part because we get to do all sorts of different things. And we have a little bit of a a higher ceiling perhaps than others for dreaming of something new and, and really working hard to try and make it happen. 
do you have a typical day since you've been with the Energy Transition Initiative, or is it just different every day? I, I don't know if I do have a typical day. I think a lot of it depends on which part of my work I'm, I'm focusing on. I mean, we have one project that I kind of alluded to, but we call it the, the Southeast Energy and Environmental Leadership Forum, or SELF, because that is a mouthful, mm-hmm. which is kind of more at the regional level where we and our partners over at Duke University focus on bringing state officials, regulators, and their counterparts at the federal level, whether it's the EPA or the Department of Energy, a little bit closer together on big issues, whether it's Clean Air Act rules that are you know impending, or you know back in the day when that project was first started, it was all about the Clean Power Plan. Recently, given the passage of the Inflation Reduction Act, our, our work has really been centered around that. So in terms of my typical day, I think a lot of it has to do with continuing to keep up with the really good writing analysis that's happening about those kind of policy issues. I think a lot of it includes strategizing what our next convening effort will look like, whether it's a virtual convening, like a, a webinar that we're putting together in the next couple of weeks, or if it's an in-person, you know, two-day workshop, or it's, you know, getting into the weeds and going deep on some of the analysis and the writing that we're trying to produce. I think a typical day is probably hard to describe, but a lot of really exciting things happening all at once. Wonderful. That's, that's what we like to hear. I think typical days are, are nice in principle, but in practice, when you don't have them, it's, it's maybe more exciting. Could you just talk a little more generally about maybe the IRA and then where your efforts are to try and connect um, your work and the ETI to the IRA? Absolutely. So I think I, I will just start from kind of the basics about what the Inflation Reduction Act is and why I think it's and not not just me, but a lot of folks that are thinking about these issues as it relates to the energy transition really consider it to be a game changer. Um, simply put, it's the biggest piece of climate legislation that the U.S. Congress has ever passed. It's not all climate and energy. It's, it's a wider bill than that. But about $370 billion worth of it is energy investment and climate investment. And kind of distilled to its core, what it's seeking to do is use incentives a lot, most of the time through the tax code, which can get a little wonky very quickly. But it's trying to make cleaner energy options cheaper and more cost competitive, more cost effective, so that when, whether it's a utility, someone like Duke Energy, or you know any other kind of provider across the, across the country, or if it's even just a household, trying to make a choice between the next car they're gonna buy, how they're gonna heat their home. It passed in August last year, 2022, I think it was mid-August 2022, and since then it's, it's really kind of revolutionized how we're thinking about the cost of renewables vis-a-vis fossil fuels, um, different technologies um, such as hydrogen, carbon capture, utilization, and sequestration. There's a lot of things that are built in there that um, the, the underlying economics and the cost of which have been fundamentally altered in many ways. It's a lot to, to process whether you are a student thinking about this, wanting to, to you know, embark on a career in the world of energy, or if you are a state official who's charged with thinking about how to reduce CO2 emissions so I think the key, a key goal of our work has been to help those varying audiences understand what's in the IRA, to break down some of the, the complexities there, but also create safe spaces for questions to be asked and for you know, a good analysis and good data to be, to be presented in those conversations. 
um, because it is a massive, massive piece of legislation. Even though it passed back in August, there's still a lot of unanswered questions, and we're trying to play a role in, in helping um, different audiences parse through all that. If we distill it down, it's another case of a large federal action and trying to understand the implications at the state level. And yeah. so looking at that a little more specifically, you've mentioned North Carolina's carbon plan. Could you talk a little bit more about how you feel that's a, a good entry point to talk about the energy transition? And maybe talk about recently there have been, you know, there's a lot of positivity because it's, as you said, it's bipartisan. It's part of an unexpected um, move forward, perhaps, um, from a, a coalition that was definitely from lots of different parts of government, but also perhaps maybe a little about some of the equivocal feelings about it or perhaps challenges that have been talked a little bit more about in the maybe last month or so. The North Carolina Carbon Plan stemmed from its kind of, kind of legislative mandate roots in a, um, in a piece of legislation that passed back in October of 2021, which uh, is called House Bill 951 for short. And that bill mandated the North Carolina Utilities Commission to come up with a plan uh, to take reasonable steps, to use their language, to achieve uh, 70% reductions in CO2 emissions by 2030 and carbon neutrality by 2050. Um, so that kind of kicked off a process in which the Utility Commission had Duke Energy, because that's who, what their, pur you know, their purview applies to, put together a couple pathways to reach those goals. Once they submitted those pathways, it, it kicked off a, a process of stakeholder interventions and for there to kind of be a back and forth. Um, and all of that culminated in the deadline um, being very close in December of 2022, uh, where the, the commission published their order, which included the carbon plan. So all of that to say, it's, it's, it's kind of North Carolina's roadmap to achieving its emission reductions going forward. And since it came out, there's been some kind of mixed reactions. And a lot of that has to do with maybe a, a sense of underwhelming results. Uh, I think some people really were expecting the, the commission and Duke to lean a little bit uh, further into solar, and that didn't really pan out the way they expected. I think, obviously, there's going to be um, some sticking points when it comes to new natural gas investment and leaning into new technologies that are not exactly tried and tested. The one that comes to mind in, as it relates to the carbon plant is small uh, modular nuclear reactors. I think the, the key other piece of the context to include here is that the IRA came out about three or four months after the pathways were introduced by Duke on how they were going to achieve these goals, and it came out right before the, interve the interveners or the, the stakeholder kind of interventions kicked off. And it's really kind of just an unfortunate, you know, timing thing. I, I think um, there would have, it would have been great to get all of those economics integrated into what the carbon plant could look like. And they, they mentioned this in the, carbon, in the actual order. The text talks about how there just wasn't enough time. And, you know, if you, if you don't cut the modeling off at some point, it just becomes endless. And I, and I totally understand that. Um, one thing I would note, though, that I'm really excited about is normally this process happens every two years. But because the IRA really alters things and they want to make sure that it's included, they've actually updated their, their cadence, if you will, to have the new carbon plan be submitted uh, September of 2023 this year. So uh, between now and then is going to be a really important time to, to get it right. And I hope for the ETI and, and UNC to play a role in that in some way. Absolutely. That sounds great. So I don't know if you know this, Alex, but it's Carolina Engagement Week. I 
Clearly, I'll offer my opinion that the Energy Transition Initiative is a really important piece of engagement. It is taking expertise. It is developing new understandings and using them to engage with all parts of, of the state. And at the university, we often, often talk about impact on the state and beyond. It's clear that these things go well beyond the borders of our state. But could you maybe talk a little bit about the strengths you see in the ETI as an engagement tool for the university at, in service to the state and beyond? Yeah, I think it. I think its strengths definitely fall back onto the strength of the university itself, which are credibility, trust among varying parties that are are trying to do in good faith, you know, the best possible thing as it relates to the energy transition. I think we we come into conversations and spaces with state officials and different audiences with a lot of goodwill because they know that we are coming at this from a data-driven, evidence-based, nonpartisan perspective. Uh, and that goes a long way, I think, in terms of setting the tone for those conversations to be really solution-oriented and, uh, and always in good faith. So I'd say that, but I think in terms of kind of going the other direction, in terms of engaging the, the campus community, I think the ETI can play a kind of a cool um, kind of pivotal role or a fulcrum, if you will, where we connect students with the ideas that we're also trying to reach um, policymakers or, or regulators or other officials on. And it, it kind of creates this cool microcosm of why students come to Carolina to begin with, which is to get prepared for a really fulfilling life and career. And if we can introduce some of those those issues that they're going to be wrestling with as potentially, you know, working in this space, but even just as people, you know, paying their energy bills when they grow up and they're out in the world. I, I think having a, having a better understanding of what the energy transition, how it'll impact their life and their role in it, um, I think that's a key, a key part of what I'm trying to do as well. Absolutely. Yeah, well, it's really exciting. Um, it's exciting for me as the director of the Institute for the Environment that we have a history of working in this space. Kathleen Gray's group has had a long-time program that's helped teachers and students understand what the energy transition looks like, and not just using that as a euphemism, literally going to plants and seeing what energy generation looks like and how that transition is is very involved and very much of an infrastructure um, activity, so not something trivial at all. And it's it's just exciting to, to see it moving along and to see it growing in a time when it's critically needed. So, Alex, I really appreciate your time. It's, uh, it's certainly a place where you can find plenty to do in plenty of places. Um, I'll mention some of our other um, collaborators in this space. Alex has had support from the North Carolina Collaboratory. So we're grateful to all of our partners who have helped fund the support. We're looking forward to working with some of our private sector partners. Haynes Brands has been very interested in this area, who's a partner with us and some other things we do in sustainability. So it's, I think the sky's the limit to here and it's, it's definitely a case of, we need all the information we can get to move this really important process forward. So thank you all for listening and we'll, we'll see you or hear you next time on the Sustainable Carolina podcast.